I have some more. Thank you, Will. I have some more um, documents to hand out to you. Can I trouble you to distribute them, please? Thank you. Um, appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, uh, while these are going out, Pastor Booth, tell me. Oh, where is he? He's trying to find some coffee. Um, I. When do we want to be out of here? When, when do we want to be completely done? I need Pastor Booth to tell me. Uh, Mr. Alders. Right. Wrap up around 11. Oh, that's loads of time. Yeah. So if I, I, if I, what I hope to do then is to talk just briefly um, in this next session um, about one cluster of issues. And I want to explain why uh, I think this set of issues is significant. Um, If you don't mind, let me pray just before we begin again, just ask God's uh, blessing on our time. Merciful Father, we are thankful again for one another. Uh, As we've seen, uh, the scriptural vision for our future growth into Christ-likeness set before us. It's stirring and challenging. and At times it's uh, depressing as we look back on wasted opportunities and yet we thank you that every day is a a new day with you. We're clothed with Christ and filled in him with every good thing. And so we ask that as we really try and get practical uh, now, you would give us the capacity to scrutinize ourselves and to make concrete specific resolutions which will actually help us uh, in the months and years ahead to discipline ourselves faithfully and fruitfully that we may be more Christ-like and less Adamic servants of you our Heavenly Father and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've given you a uh, single handout, thank you, sir, uh, headed a history of major technological developments, which might be sufficient to make you think I've got a little bit confused and have stepped into the wrong uh, lecture. I assure you that I haven't. Uh, what prompts this is a cluster of concerns coming out of uh, what we've talked about uh, already in the last three sessions. The first is the underlying conviction that uh, the task of Adam at which he failed, of Christ at which he succeeded, and of every one of us at which we are called to make progress, begins with ruling ourselves, disciplining ourselves. The, The creation includes you and So let's subdue that first. And that will, it turns out, help us to subdue the other parts of the created order around us. Second, um, I want to pick up in a practical way the most or one of the most significant single contributions to modern men's inability to govern themselves, which is this thing. 
how many of you have had that experience where uh, you are in a group of people and you, maybe you need to go to the restroom and so you know you put your coffee cup down you step out of the room and as you step out of the room and you're on your own and you just do this just to, just to check and did you do that? How many of you had the experience of, worse, catching yourself in company with other people, perhaps with your wife at the dinner table, um, uh, with your kids, you know, watching a movie, and it gets to a slow bit or a bit you've seen before, and you just kind of, you know, out it comes again, and it's like, oh, it's gonna, hold on, I'm just going to check something. There's an interest. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Um, how many of you have had the experience of um, maybe you get home from work or you get home from school and you just sort of slump on the sofa and you and it comes and Facebook and it's 3.45 in the afternoon, school or 6.30 in the evening, coming back from work and you just start scrolling and flicking and scrolling and flicking and two hours pass. Um, and you wonder where the evening's gone. Pastor Booth and I were uh, with a number of other pastors at Gloria Sancta in January. And we, I, can't, I think it was Pastor Hadding, wasn't it, who asked people, um, you know, these young people. And these, these, are, these are the godly, enthusiastic young people who will pay money to come on summer on Gloria Sancta in January um, and hear Bible teaching. Right? This is not, um, let's find the most troubled youth we can. This is, these are godly young Christian adults. And what they were, how many hours a day do you spend on social media? And it was like eight hours a day in some cases, wasn't it? it I, I was like flabbergasted. Um, I can still remember the first time I saw a man uh, in a public place. It was a coffee shop with his wife and children. Obviously, we may be partner, but, but certainly with his family. Um, having a cup of coffee, and he was on his smartphone while the kids talked to each other, and his wife was sort of gazing around, wondering what to do. And I was shocked by it at the time. I'm no longer shocked by it. And I find myself um, struggling with varying success to resist similar temptations. And we've not even talked about what the Internet is actually for. What is the Internet for? Well, the Internet is for um, uh, communication and it's for facilitating um, financial transactions and for, for um, working and uh, all kinds of other things. But if you were an alien coming from another planet and you just sort of said, well, okay, what is this Internet thing? This looks like a good idea. I wonder if, I wonder if we could use this back home on whatever planet we've just come from. Um, this isn't, I don't actually think there is life on other planets, by the way, but thought experiment. Um, uh, and they analyzed what the Internet is used for and discovered, as they would, that 40% of all websites, no, 40% of all video downloads, I think it's 35% of all websites, are one thing, pornography. Like, to a first approximation, what the Internet is for is for viewing pornographic images and movies and video. That's what it is. As a sideline... 
It also upholds the world banking system and various other things, international communication, government administration, that sort of thing. But basically what it's for is for porn. Um, And there you are, you know, your son has his 14th birthday and he gets his first iPhone. That was a great idea, wasn't it? Uh, Or was it? Um, In other words, uh, that little thing in your pocket turns out to be um, far, far more difficult. Well, it's not that it's difficult to control it. It's that it has so completely controlled us that probably without realizing it, almost all of us, maybe there are some who aren't, but almost all of us are ruled by it, which means to say ruled by other people. How many of you have seen the social dilemma, the Netflix thing? You know, all those, the, the greatest minds in cognitive science putting their expertise to work to figure out how to hack your neurology to keep you addicted to your Facebook feed, to keep you scrolling. So when, so when just as you're about to close the app, it says, someone is typing a comment. And you're like, ooh, I'm just going to wait. Genius. The, the HTML5 thing about um, never-ending never, never scrolling. So you get to the bottom of the page and you keep scrolling and, it, and the, the web page interprets it as a signal to load the next bit of the web page. So you never get to the bottom of the web page. Genius. Those three dots. Those three dots. And, oh, something's coming. Maybe, and, and likes and pokes and uh, retweets and everything that is designed to make you feel like you're valuable. And what's happening is that the greatest computer scientists and the greatest cognitive scientists of our generation are trying to figure out how to extract advertising revenue by, from you by keeping you sitting on the sofa for two hours when you get home from school doing this. Emptying your life and emptying your mind of anything meaningful and filling their coffers with advertising dollars. That's what it's about. Um, now, the Netflix documentary is an example of how I'm very, very far from being the first person to point this out. This has now become a mainstay of modern life. The recognition that the Internet in general and smartphones in particular, and especially social media on smartphones, have captured human life and imagination and seem to present to us uh, temptations that our feeble minds are just not equipped to resist. Um, this has been expressed far more cogently and in far more precise and technical terms by others, and I'm not going to try and imitate them, but there are books on this subject. There are articles routinely every week, every month in uh, Atlantic and on major websites, <laughs> major websites, uh, magazines. So on. Uh, the Netflix documentary is a great thing to watch. Um, and the consequence is that Christians have started rightly to become a little bit suspicious about, well, should I give my 13-year-old a smartphone? So when I said that, you went, like, that would be a really dumb idea. And I think it probably is a really dumb idea just to give your child an unsupervised, unmetered device for hooking themselves up to whatever trash anybody else puts out there. But there's a problem with this analysis, historically and theologically, it seems to me that it is too 
narrow and restricted. This criticism of internet, smartphones, social media focuses its attention on the tip of an iceberg which has been building since the dawn of civilization. And it is necessary for us to, uh, what would you say, to step back and see where this has come from and see its place in the larger collection of related problems, which all have to do with what we might roughly term technology and the peculiar balance between the benefits and the problems that it produces. And this little uh, one-page sheet that I've given you is designed to guide us through the next few minutes. And what I really want to say, I'll try and summarize it as concisely as I can. Human history is the history of technological development. And every technological development from the plow and the wheel back in the fourth millennium BC, right the way up to um, the, the iPhone and the metaverse in the 21st century, has opened up new productive possibilities for humanity. There are new things that we can do. And every single one of those advances has posed new challenges to us. Every single one is good, but be a bit careful because. And in order to handle the be a bit careful because, what you need is maturity. Yeah? A mature person is one who's in the position to handle the gift of a new technology, printing, uh, the invention of plastics, uh, the invention of, of telephone communication, whatever. A mature person can take the good thing and use it for good without being ensnared or ruled by the negative temptations that flow from it. But what's happened over time is that the pace of technological development has increased and the rate of human maturation has not. So we have fallen further and further and further behind in our capacity to keep up with the demands that technology places upon us. And this history of major technological development is designed to highlight this. I want to talk through from 3700 BC and highlight just a few examples of how um, this great thing helps us to do new things. Ah, but yeah, look, it presents us with a problem that only a mature community could deal with. And initially, mostly people were mature enough to handle it. But as the pace of technological development has increased, and you see the shape of the graph, it's not really supposed to represent anything quantitative, but just to qualitatively, and not to scale, um, reflect the increasing human impact up on the y-axis, see human impact up here, and time across the bottom. And neither axis is quantitative, obviously. But my thesis is, that the human impact of technological change has dramatically increased, requiring so much more of us in order to tame it, and we're just not up to the task. And really, the wheel started coming off sometime around about the Industrial Revolution. That's, I think, roughly where things started to go bad. And they've been getting worse ever since, and goodness knows what's going to happen by 2030, 
2040 or 2100. Let me talk through this and then I'll see what I mean. Right. Start back in 3700 BC, which is roughly when the plow was invented. Just enables a person to provide more food for his family. It's all good news. Uh, initially hand-operated, obviously then towed by animals, uh, not towed by machines for centuries or millennia yet, but it's all good, right? The invention of the wheel around 3500 BC allows you to do things, to transport things. Instead of having to carry or drag your produce to market, you could place it on the back of a cart and carry it to market. It dramatically increased your productivity. You still have to work hard. You've got to pull the cart. So you get the, the fulfillment of... Uh, a work a, a work day well well done a, a job well done, but you, you can transport probably ten times as much by pulling a cart, especially well hundred times as much if you get a donkey or a couple of oxen to pull it as you could before. The invention of uh, bronze and methods for smelting iron in the second uh, third and second millennium BC respectively dramatically increased the the robustness and strength of tools and machines that could be made. Of course, um, chariot, iron. I mean, what is a chariot exactly? I mean, a chariot is like the cart that you drag your produce with to market, except it's designed to be pulled behind a horse and it's for battle. So what have you done here? Well, maybe you need that to defend yourself yeah, but maybe you needed to defend yourself because somebody else is using it to attack you. You see what's happened is people have invented the ancient tank. Yeah? What a, a, a great technology for improving agricultural productivity, the cart with a wheel, has become a thing with which to wreak greater damage on other city-states in the ancient world. And recall Israel's fear at the iron chariots that the Canaanites had. The Canaanites are like, well, we'll fight them in the valleys, not in the hills, because we've got iron chariots, and their gods are god of the hills anyway. We want to stay away from there. Um, the sundial allowed people to, I guess, control time in uh, a new way, or at least um, keep track of time in a new way. We'll come back to some of the effects of that in later technological developments that were related to it. Um, catapults and stirrups it's hard to think of a great use for a catapult other than as a weapon of war. Of course, the stirrup allowed people to harness um, horses. People have been riding horses for a long time, but it's much easier, it turns out, to have an army of mounted soldiers um, if you have stirrups and bridles and so on, because riding bareback is tricky, and especially if you're trying to fire bows and arrows. Uh, but if you've got stirrups, it's easier to train a large number of men to do that. So all of these are, are inventions which, well... You can travel further and faster on a horse, stirrup, bridle, but it could be used for evil as well. Nonetheless, you can see how a society could function reasonably well and control its evil desires without too much difficulty if it wanted to. Um, around about the first century AD, um, the invention of the Roman Codex, a codices like a book. They've been in existence in, in prototype form for many years before that um, but really, the Romans sort of perfected the art of making a book with multiple leaves. Um, paper was invented 100 or so years later. Uh, early codices were, were leather or some other kind of material on which the text was written. Um, and then, if you zoom on just um, a couple of stages to the invention of the printing press, you go in the space of 1,500 years from not being able to produce 
mass circulation literature to being able to produce mass circulation literature. And in the printing press, it's hard to think of a, a more dramatic and significant um, technological transformation in the late Middle Ages, isn't it? I mean, just think about what the printing press did during the, Re- the Reformation. Suddenly, you can print Bibles and tracts. And what was the first book printed on these shores? The Bay Psalms book yeah, in the 17th century. What a wonderful blessing to be able to get the scriptures and get Christian teaching into the hands of many people. But do you notice what starts to happen? As people start to be able to publicize their words more broadly and more easily, you get the pamphlet wars of the later Reformation period. And all the scurrilous misrepresentations that are involved in some of the things that were printed in the 16th and 17th and 18th century. And goodness, I mean... That's nothing compared to where we are now. But with the dawn of the printing press, the capacity to produce uh, enduring verbal testimony, you can produce enduring lies, enduring misrepresentation. So a society that can't govern itself will find it very difficult to not deploy this tremendous blessing, the printing press, for evil. And you start to see how we're on the cusp of, if we're not careful, technology is going to get away from us and start doing us more harm than good. I didn't mention gunpowder. Obviously, um, explosives can be used in all kinds of positive applications like mining and so on. You don't need to be too creative to see how else they can be used. The portable clock is an interesting one. Um, That was most significant in the centuries that followed as an aid to navigation at sea. It turns out that in order to measure your um, uh, longitude, you need to know exactly what time it is. Um, And uh, that, together with the compass, which was invented about 100 AD, um, meant that people could reliably navigate around the globe because they knew what time it was where they were and they could adjust like for the where the sun is during the day, so they can figure out roughly where they are in the middle of a great big ocean like the Atlantic or the Pacific. Of course, so what does that open up? That opens up the possibility of exploration. And you see that in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. But what else does the possibility of exploration allow? Conquest. um, Nations that previously had not known each other coming together for good or for evil. Um, microscopes, 1609, really opened up a whole world. People just didn't know that microorganisms existed before the early and mid-17th century. And there's this, I can't remember who the guy was, I forget his name, but that looked at a sample of pond water under a microscope. Can you imagine doing that for the first time? It's like, oh, I wonder why, I wonder if this is why people get sick when they drink from this river. You know, I don't think they figured that out immediately, but... um, These tremendous innovations. But really, when you turn the corner into the 18th century, these next three, which are listed, I've not included everything that's significant here, obviously, but these three are particularly interesting. And you know some of this history of the Industrial Revolution. The invention of the steam engine, the flying shuttle, and the spinning jenny. Does anybody know what the flying shuttle and the spinning jenny are? Yeah, they're to do with weaving. And in the 18th century Industrial Revolution in northern England, what you start to see is... um, uh, a transition from 
fabric making and cloth making being done by individual people with hand looms to these massive factories powered by steam engines and containing these enormous machines which could produce cloth so much more cheaply and uh, therefore allow tremendous prosperity for the people who are able to benefit from them, people who are able to buy the cloth and the clothing made from them and so on and so forth. So what happened in the Industrial Revolution? Well, first thing that happened is all the weavers got together in bands to smash the machines to pieces in the middle of the night because they're taking away our jobs. Any time you have a, a transition from inefficient human labor-intensive work to much more efficient mechanized work, you get resentment among the people who's, who get laid off. And that, now, that's not really anybody's fault. I mean, it is their fault for smashing the machines up. They shouldn't have done it. But not everybody had read you know, Austrian economics in the 18th century, obviously. Um, it's, and it, even if they had, it's still hard for people to deal personally and socially with the inevitable short-term in that generation, poverty that results from the fact that all I know how to do is to, all I know how to do is um, uh, weave cloth, and now there's a machine over there that can do it a hundred times quicker for a tenth the price. Or all I know how to do is drive a London taxi cab. That's all I know how to do. And I spent three years getting the knowledge, which is a London taxi driver um, with his eyes closed can tell you how to drive from anywhere in London to anywhere else in London. Right? These guys are... Their brains... Autopsies have been performed on the brains of deceased London taxi drivers. And the, the surgeons note that certain portions of their brain are massively enlarged because of the training that they've subjected themselves to by memorizing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of street names and so on. And, that's, and it's, it's a great living until Uber comes along. Now, what are we to make of that? On the one hand, you want to say um, it's just the inevitable fruit of progress. Of course it is. But it also, we, we can't ignore the actual fact of the social disruption that results. And even if we think that the economics of protectionism are short-sighted, which I think they are, nonetheless, what do you do about my friend who's a taxi driver? Or somebody's friend, or hundreds or thousands of people in the uh, Industrial Revolution who were weavers put out of work. But more than that, something changes when your work goes from being a weaver at the loom in the front room of your house to being a factory worker five miles away from your home. Something changes about the structure of your life. Just, and some of you who have worked at home and also worked in an office know what I'm talking about, yes? What happens when you go from working at home during the pandemic, to having to go back into the office again afterwards. You just see less of your kids. It's harder to have family meals together. How many families stopped doing family worship when the pandemic ended? Because what had happened is that they've got their own replay of the effects of the Industrial Revolution, where your place of work is suddenly, for the first time, for thousands and thousands of people dissociated from the place of your family and your community. And so your life is now in two geographical locations. How do you handle that? Well, you can handle it. You can handle it. But you need to be much more disciplined. You need to be much more in control of your life. If you live in Granbury, 45 minutes west of Fort Worth, and work in Dallas, an hour and a half drive the other side, you can have family meal times. 
You can spend time with your kids. You can worship with your family. You can pray with your wife. You can have a social life. But it takes, it's much harder to organize those things. And if you lack personal self-discipline, if you lack maturity, you're far less likely to be able to do it. That's the kind of transition that the Industrial Revolution brought about. And it's not obvious that we've ever systematically caught up with that. It's not obvious to me, at least, that this experience of my home is here and my workplace is over there is something that human beings have ever got to grips with. I keep going. I I threw vaccination in just to put a smile on your faces. (laughs) I mean... Well, I don't know what you think of these kind of COVID vaccines. I had to have one because I was applying for a green card. I had COVID, and the doctor's like, yeah, I know, it's ridiculous, isn't it? But anyway, here you are. Um, but, uh, I mean, it saved tens of millions, hundreds of millions of lives, uh, whooping cough, pertussis, and um, smallpox, and so on and so forth. But Jonathan Edwards died of a smallpox vaccine. Oops. You know what I mean? It's just like... Uh, careful. Um, electric light. I mean, that is just, what a revolution. Early 19th century, the first electric light bulb. Suddenly, um, you can start to utilize more of the night. <laughs> well, I should say more of the day. More, more time for working. That factory you built, great. It can start open 24 hours a day. Awesome result, unless you're the guy on the night shift. Come in at 10, leave at 6. So much for your social life and any other aspect of your life. Because it turns out that with this mastery of illumination, well, there's a price tag attached to that. That unless you discipline yourself carefully, you can start living a kind of nocturnal lifestyle. You can be decoupled from the natural rhythms that you need as a person or that that allow you to function within uh, a society well. And so a church in Fort Worth, and I suspect in church here, we've got a few guys who they struggle to get to church on Sunday morning because they finished work three hours previously. And that, and that was very much the case in, in London. We used to have people who were just working the night shift at the Amazon warehouse or whatever it was. And so, as a, not just as individuals, but as a society, the capacity to master the rhythm of day and night by illuminating the night time is going to place a, a, a very strong requirement on you to turn the light off at 10 o'clock. And of course, that's part of the problem now with um, these young people who are sort of Facebooking into the early hours of the morning because they can't sleep because their brain has been fooled into thinking it's still daytime by all the blue light coming from the screens. You see, this is not a new phenomenon. We're now getting, we're starting to get towards the beginnings of the kind of problems that we're seeing in the modern world. Let's keep moving through this history. 1878, the invention of the telephone, and then related uh, in 1895, uh, a few few lines up, um, radio telegraphy. Um, Again, wow. I mean, what an astonishing innovation. Suddenly, you can communicate instantly with people who are to a first approximation, any distance away. Astonishing. Uh, new capacity for productivity. But for the first time in human history, we have to deal with the reality of disembodied relationships. And it, 
it didn't dawn on people, or maybe I guess it did dawn on people, but perhaps not in such a, an explicit way, that being just in conversation with somebody who's a long way away is not the same as sitting in the same room as them. I guess they, they, they figured that out immediately. That's an obvious observation. But the psychological effects of... What, what would it be like, okay, just having a phone call once a week with your great-grandmother or something, or your grandma or your sister across town, that's fine. But what would happen... I mean, I bet they never thought of this. What would happen if 99% of your relationships were all disembodied? Well, isn't that exactly the situation that many people are in nowadays, where they might have three or four people that they see in an average day, but then what social media does is give you access to three or four or 500 disembodied relationships. Now, how, how ought we to navigate those relationships? How do we prevent ourselves from just curating the image that we put out there on the, the telephone or on our social media so that we're giving sort of fake portrayal of who we are? Well, that's a temptation that nobody's managed to resist as far as I can make out. I mean, who, 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 even if you've never been on Instagram and kind of pushed one of the buttons to take away all the pimples and creases from your face, how many of you have ever... Um, you know, you're taking your profile photo for Facebook and you sort of hold the camera up and go click and it looks a bit terrible and you think, oh, it doesn't matter, I'll put that one up anyway. Of course you don't. You take it again. <laughs> so it looks half decent. What are you doing? Curating your self-portrayal. Um, let's keep moving up. Um, aluminium. Uh, was Sorry. <laughs> aluminum. <laughs> I even spelt it the American way. Um, I'm not going to talk about that. Um, the invention of the gramophone in 1887. Wow, wonderful. You can um, uh, record music and therefore dance halls. And great. But 100% great? Hmm. Not for all those illegitimate children born in the early 20th century. Um, ballpoint pen. Well, that's kind of uh, the first really truly democratized form of enduring written communication. Before, you had pencils and you had quill pens. It's much harder to use a quill pen, and pencils are kind of expensive and fiddly. But a ballpoint pen is like adding another layer to um, what we talked about earlier with the printing press. Um, uh, Commercial automobile, 1901. Um, And then, especially later, with the moving production line in 1913, and that was um, Henry Ford, wasn't it? So for the first time the people who worked in the car factory could afford to buy the cars that they were making. It was like four months' wages, wasn't it? Which is about what a car costs now. I mean, it's, it might be six months, it might be two months, but it's that kind of order. It costs a few tens of thousands to buy a new car, right? Um, what a tremendous blessing. Can you think of any problems that have arisen as a consequence of the invention of the car? Right. Um, flight. Uh, it's interesting to me that military aircraft were widely used before commercial aircraft and passenger aircraft. Um, our ability to travel around the globe, I mean, that's just that's how come I got here? Uh, how come I managed to get here before? But it's intriguing that uh, just in a very, very practical, nitty-gritty way, the fact that a businessman can now travel widely by car, travel widely by plane, creates relational problems. It's not obvious to me, at least, that we have um, fully figured out how to handle the complexities that result from that in our families and relationships and churches. 
the uh, invention of TV, commercial radio, 1920, um, commercial television, where's that? Did I not even put that? Commercial TV, 1928. Hands up if you've read Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Yeah, you read that. And he's got that introduction where he says, um, in the 20th century, the Western, and this is paraphrasing, but the Western world was worried by, worried about the possibility of a kind of totalitarianism in the mold of Orwell's 1984, where we will be controlled by powers above ourselves. Big Brother is watching you. Because what we took our eyes off was another kind of totalitarianism. Not the totalitarianism of Big Brother in 1984 and George Orwell, but the totalitarianism of the Feelys and Aldous Huxley and Brave New World, where we wouldn't need anybody to suppress our cultural desires because there will be nobody left who's interested in culture. What you'd have is pure cotton candy entertainment. Now, Neil Postman was writing in the 1990s. Can you imagine what he would think? He, he, was, he was writing where, where, at a time when in Britain, I think there were four TV channels available. <laughs> what, he would, what he would think of the world in which we now live, where entertainment, not leisure, entertainment, frivolous, light, diverting, distracting, addictive, and vacuous entertainment is just everywhere. Yeah, I mean, do you want to say TV is a bad thing? I don't say it's a great thing. It is a technological innovation that we are a thousand years behind being mature enough to appropriate wisely. And then we're right on the brink of uh, transistors, integrated circuits, cell phones, HTTP, which is the internet protocol, smartphones, Google, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, iPhone, and now the metaverse. <laughs> which I don't know whether you've seen the initial video that Facebook produced and everyone's like, no way. I'm, ne- I'm never getting one of these. I guarantee it. If you want a 10-year punt, buy a, a Metaverse ETF because you can buy a Metaverse ETF now, an exchange-traded fund which allows you to invest in Metaverse-related companies. It will go big before people realize that it is a problem. And by the time they realize it's a problem, the next big thing will be around the corner. Now, just notice a couple of issues with this. um, What we're seeing is the latest installment of the progress of technological innovation that most dramatically highlights our inability to deal with it. What we forget is that like, we had a problem in the 1990s. We had a problem in the 1950s. We had a problem when, in 1950s America, a great big economic boom, everyone could suddenly buy their own house with electrical appliances like washing machines, and so you have these vast, sprawling suburbs full of people um, who they only need one income to support the family because economic growth, and so wife can stay at home, but wife has nothing to do anymore. Great, she can rest and relax, and you have a uh, housing development with 10,000 houses and 10,000 wives with nothing to do all day. What are you expecting to happen? Is that how life is supposed to be lived? Well, for a wise and mature woman, like some of your wives, what could they accomplish in like just a day without other work to do? They would be amazingly productive, but 
just like not every man is mature, not every woman is mature. And so what happened in 1950s America? Well, what happened was it was the decade before 1960s America, remember? Where'd that come from? Well, the kids who were teenagers in 1966 were born in 1950 and were raised in those housing developments. I don't know enough about the history, but that's where they came from. I wonder what led to some of those problems. Can you start to see? In focusing simply on these most recent technological developments, we are taking our eye off the fact that this is the tip of an iceberg that has been building for generations. And our challenge is not just to find a way of not checking this so often. We have to figure out how to answer the broader question of which that is the most potent and recent instantiation. How to embrace the benefits of technology without immaturely being ruled by it. Let me give you one example of how this is sometimes done well. I skipped over the invention of plastics in 1907. Invention of plastics is tremendous technological innovation, which is mostly overlooked because people take them for granted. But almost everything around us is made of plastic. Like the shirt I'm wearing. Actually, this is a cotton shirt. But probably the thread is polyester because it's just sort of cheaper to make. Um, many of the things that we see around us, and it's cheaper, it's easy, it's quick. And so people make all kinds of cheap tat out of plastic, don't they? Um, but some people resist. You go to Pastor Booth's home and you see this beautiful handcrafted dining table. I've got an offer for you, Pastor Booth. There's this beautiful high-tech plastic table just down the road in a hardware store. Um, I'm going to swap you. I'm going to buy that plastic table and put it. It's much more high-tech than your wooden one. And wipe clean surface and so on and so forth. Uh, I'll put that in your front room and I'll take away that big old-fashioned wooden heavy low-tech dining table. Is that a deal? Are you happy with that? Yeah, didn't think so. Now, why? Why not? Here's the reason. Because the resistance has been ongoing. The resistance has been present at points where people have realized that the new paths are not always better in every way, in every context, for every thing. Sometimes the old ways are better. Not because we want to just live like Bronze Age hermits, but because we have a thoughtful, big picture, wise and mature approach to life as a whole, which allows us to selectively benefit from technological advances, which is why Pastor Booth is not interested in me offering him a more technologically advanced plastic dining room table. I want the old one. Correct? Now, that, it seems to me, is the mentality that we need everywhere. Um, You will have heard your pastor at various times talk about what we can learn from other Christian traditions. I actually think we can learn something from the Amish and Mennonite traditions here. I I went to Pennsylvania recently um, and was able to travel through the countryside a little bit and see the slightly uh, quirky buggies and uh, old-fashioned homes and they've all got washing hanging out on the line and the clothes look like they've been made by hand because they have. And 
Um, all the houses have a generator outside because electricity is okay, but, but we don't want to be hooked up to the grid because, right? And we, we customarily mock that attitude. Now, I'm not suggesting that Mennonite theology or even Mennonite lifestyle is wise, but um, I was reading a, an evaluation of this from a sympathetic critic. Um, it's in, um, I think it's in Deep Work by Cal Newport. I think it was another book by Cal Newport. I forget which one. And he said he went to talk to some uh, Mennonites, actually, and asked them what they do when a new technology comes along and why they seem to reject it. And they said, well, we don't reject it. What happens is if somebody wants to bring this new technology into the community, then we'll generally have a meeting and talk about it. And if they want to bring it in, we'll let them bring it in and we'll try it out for a while. And then after a few months or a few weeks or whatever, we'll get together and we'll, we'll discuss whether the benefits of it outweigh the disadvantages. And if it looks to us like the disadvantages um, are too great, then we'll either reject it or we'll try and find another way of getting the advantages without embracing the thing as a whole and therefore all the downsides. So you find electric, electricity in uh, Amish and Mennonite communities, but customarily it's, developed, it's generated locally. Because that's how, I'm not suggesting they've made that judgment correctly, Maybe they're wrong about that judgment, but the mindset is interesting. He gives the example of one guy who's got this super complicated CNC milling machine in his workshop, and he does all this kind of high-tech um, stuff, and he's got his computer programming all the, the seven-axis uh, drives for the, the different cutting tools and so on, and it's all hooked up to a diesel generator because they have selectively sought to appropriate the benefits of technological advance whilst remaining keenly aware of the dangers that may be inherent in all of them. I don't think they've made the judgments correctly at every point. I suspect, however, that we have made them incorrectly at far more points than we realize. And it's that re-evaluation that I think we need to embrace and engage in. Now, I'm going to pause because it may be helpful just to think for a second and see if there are any questions. And um, one of the things that we might want to get to is, okay, practically speaking, how would we take, if, suppose we wanted to embrace an insight like that in relation to technology and, okay, how would we put that to work in our context with the particular demands that technology makes on us? Maybe we want to talk about that. But I don't want to just launch off in that direction because it may be that there are other things that you want to talk about first or as well, and it would be good to shape that discussion in a particular way. So questions and comments. And Pastor Booth, anything you want to throw into the mix initially? Okay. Mm-hmm.
yeah, yeah. yeah. It's exactly that process. I wonder how that would, what would our version of that Amish discussion and uh, discernment look like if we were to, if the elders here at All Saints were to say, let's, let's try this for three months or six months. Maybe that's a, a wood mm. uh, application of that that would uh, be immensely responsible. Yeah, and I think in, in an Amish or a Mennonite community, typically it, it the community is fairly self-contained economically and socially. So the community decides. And I think there are problems with that theologically as well. I don't think the church is called to live in that kind of hermetic way. I, I, I get um, uh, the Benedict Option thing, but I don't think... Um, Rod Dreyer, isn't it? I, I don't think... To the extent that there's something in that, I don't think what we should do is sequester ourselves geographically and socially and economically from the rest of the world. So... It might not be, well, we as a community are going to decide. But it might be that we as a community are going to talk about this and think about this. And, and so what we do is say, okay, can we, can we have an honest and frank discussion about what it's really good to use a smartphone for? Let's list the things. And we, you'll get a whole bunch of things. And when it's really good to use it. And how. And then what we'll do is, well, let's have a really honest and frank discussion about all the things that we don't want to do with it. Okay, good. So, all appear on the, on the whiteboard. Excellent. Well, now we, we need to, if that's the pattern of life that we want, we really want the character that that will develop. So, what are the structures that we're going to put in place to facilitate that? Um, but that's the kind of conversation that we could have. Um, Pastor Booth, you had your hand up, yeah. You're right. Absolutely. We yeah. Right. 
Exactly. Yeah, it's nice. And in asking that question, what does the Bible say this is good for? We're asking a Solomon question, not a Moses question. Because Leviticus won't tell you about what to use a smartphone for. It's a deployment of wisdom. And sometimes I think there is that, okay, well, we might need to learn from experience. Now, what, what will inevitably happen is that society will perform the experiment for us. The problem is, so far, society has been performing the experiment on us, and we've been just kind of complicit in it. And I think the time may have come, it's past come, to be more self-conscious in stepping back and evaluating it. So I th- I mean, take, take an easier example as a kind of paradigm. The Industrial Revolution thing, I think, is a fascinating one. So if you, if you were going to go back to a Christian family um, in the mid-18th century, and Dad is basically, he used to be operating uh, a fabric-making uh, shop at home, and he's realized he can't compete, but he's managed to get a job at the factory as a supervisor. Phew, thank goodness. He's at least not going to lose his livelihood, even if he can't do what he used to do. Well, that's great. So what are you going to advise him to do? Well, h- how are you going to advise him to train his kids? And what are, what are they going to train for? Um, how are you going to train them so they don't just become drones in the factory, but that they're able to function in that industrialized world whilst living with its drawbacks? And what are the drawbacks? Well, if instead of, you know, dad gets up a bit earlier and all the kids wake up to the sound of back and forth on the hand loom, instead now dad goes out at five in the morning and he comes back at six in the evening. And how, how are you going to advise him to structure his life so that he can still flourish in his relationship with his wife and his kids and so on. How, what are you going to do? And clearly, he's going to have to be disciplined in the way that he uh, organizes his life and his family is going to have to... Otherwise, they're going to really suffer. Now, if they manage to be disciplined, they're going to reap tremendous fruit from this technological advance. But we, we, we are several steps past that. We, we're... Our human inability to handle that change is now stacked on top of our human inability to handle the problems of disembodied communication and uh, the invention of plastics and all the rubbish that can be made with them and the invention of computers and internet and social media. All of these technological benefits are stacked on top of each other. So we think great high-tech world, but we are completely drowning in inability to handle them. So... So, yes. Interesting, in, in your first session, you were talking about car. I'm an old partner. Okay, you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. I have trained a lot of young people. I've got the lines here. But then I get, then we come here with this graph here. Mm-hmm. I 
watch the young people as they do seem like they're coming along here, and then all of a sudden their learning curve goes straight up. Right. I've seen that in our church, in, in the Christian church. And the deal is, you've got up here this metal verse, I've never heard of. Good. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And th that's absolutely true and critically important. Like, I should draw a little dotted line here. Yes. Yeah. One day Facebook will be old, but it already is, obviously. Um, yeah. And it, it's interesting, just to, just to bounce back off something you said, you talked about the learning curve that young people are on. Um, yeah, young people learn to operate modern technologies very well, very quickly. You know, Twitter never came with an instruction manual. Isn't that amazing? Um, smartphones. Who, who reads instruction book on a smartphone? It's the most complicated thing you own. You've never read an instruction book. Well, why not? Because you just get the hang of it. It's like intuitive. It's brilliantly designed and you can do it. But my grandfather couldn't when he was still alive. Now, you've, you, in other words, you get that stuff, but do you get the value of wooden tables, carpentry? Do you get the value of manual labor? Yeah. Do you, and all these other things which have been good in human history, and it, um, I'm not arguing for a kind of agrarian revolution that could turn the clock back 3,000 years, but I, I think it's just what we've got now isn't great, and it's deeper than just smartphones are a problem. Yeah, sir. Yeah, yeah. To now I have to maintain that 
Mm. Yes, yes. And like the way the relationships that exist now are fluid. Yeah, yeah. And that's not I don't want to say it's not possible to have such a relationship, but um, yeah, all the things, it's, it's fascinating. Whenever I've, um, I've, I've not talked about this in this attempt to be comprehensive before, but I've had many conversations with people about the impact of technology, and almost everything people say, it's like, yeah, that's a good point. That's good. It, you, you see another little corner of where this overall phenomenon is impacting us. Um, I, I saw an, an example Moving to America, really, really interesting. Um, uh, London, parts of London are really beautiful. And lots of the equivalent parts of Fort Worth are really ugly. Now, London has ugly parts. Okay, London does have ugly parts, lots of ugly parts. And Fort Worth has beautiful parts. So this is not a generalization. But it's interesting. Um, the... Um, I think Aaron Wren made this observation. Um, conservatives in blue states um, will live in the most progressive town they can afford. Wealthy conservatives. Now, I don't know whether that's a generalization or not, but he gave a couple of examples of senior politicians who live in the most left-leaning area they can. And the reason is because all the rules and zoning regulations and uh, restrictions on what people can do mean that those little towns are really pretty to, look in, to live in, really beautiful. Whereas if you remove all the regulation, allow people to build whatever on earth they want, they build whatever on earth they want, and it's ugly. So freedom to build in a huge space like Texas has actually led in many contexts to vast swathes of ugly warehouses. But my wife and I could afford to buy a house when we moved here because the houses are built more cheaply on land that is cheaper. And both those things contribute. The land is cheaper, but the, the construction quality of the houses is... I mean, the joke that I was told by our mortgage broker was, yeah, American houses are designed to last about as long as the first mortgage. And um, I'm not being rude, but I... With some houses, I believe it. Now, British houses stand for hundreds of years, and the, 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 the little tiny flat that we used to own in South London was nearly 100 years old. And it's still fine. And now, now, that's not a criticism of anything. I mean, what do you want? Something you can afford or something that lasts? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'd rather have something that I can afford. I mean, and you don't want to... The, the fact that people build uh, large, cheap ugly industrial warehouses means that lots of people can get great jobs which make them better off than they would otherwise have been. You build houses which are cheap to build on land that's plentiful and lots of people can afford to buy a home like we can. So it's great. But it's just really interesting that that freedom and the technological advances that have been associated in that case with construction have not always led to beauty. Now why is that? Is, is it that we, as a society, lack the maturity to value beauty and enduring 
um, structures enough to pay a little bit more for them. The old joke, when I used to be a metallurgist back in the day, and um, uh, the old joke used to be about uh, car exhaust systems. You, you know you could make a car exhaust system that never needed to be replaced. You know all these, uh, uh, if I say exhaust, do you know what I mean by that? It's an English term, like the, the, the blower and everything else. Right? You'd make it out of stainless steel. It would never need to be replaced. It would cost like $5 more or something. But exhaust systems are routinely made out of mild steel because, hey, when did you ever buy a car because the exhaust system was stainless? Right? It's not something people will pay for, so it's not worth spending money on it. So in old British cars, you used to have to replace the exhaust every eight years because you'd, a hole would develop and it would be illegal to drive it without that. So you make it cheaply, even though for $5 more, you could make it so it lasted forever. And you do so just for... Because the, the, the economic evaluation that the society places on something that will last is not sufficient to warrant making it better. So whose who's fault is it? But in a sense, it's, it's a symptom of the consumer's wrong evaluation of what's worth paying for. And I wonder how much of that pervades so much... How many, how many times have you bought something and, and you realize it's made cheaply and for like 10 cents more they could have fixed this little problem and it would have been fine? And you think, why didn't they bother? And the answer is because you bought it. <laughs> right? So they, they've, they've got their money. Yeah? As a society, we have got to a point where we don't value beauty and the enduring character of things enough for manufacturers to spend the extra 10 cents on making it enduring. You can have a beautiful country when, not when you have laws that require beauty, but when you have people who value it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I want to say, praise God for the metal shed, right? Because it's better than nothing. And some metal sheds look great, and they're kept tidy. And they're, you know, so it's not a criticism of anybody's, you know, workshop. I don't hear it that way. I, I don't think you are. But it's interesting. Aaron Wren's answer was regulation. Well, it's not really his answer, but that's what I, I don't want to misrepresent it. But that, that, that's certainly the direction that he, the logic of what he was saying seemed to be taking him. And maybe he'd want to nuance that. So, so. You should listen to Aaron Wren. He's an interesting guy. He's got a podcast. And, um, I just thought, yeah, it's interesting. Because it swings and roundabouts. We have all this cheap stuff, like plastic, all this cheap stuff that we can afford. And it's all this cheap stuff that the houses are full of. Um, so maybe this, what this comes back to from one angle is we, we go back to Jamie Smith and his work on the relationship between desire and action. And we need to learn to first discern what's worth having and loving. And then we cultivate a love for those things that makes us willing to strive for them. So we become a bit more like the medieval stonemasons who would spend a year carving a gargoyle that's so high up and hidden behind a pillar that nobody's ever going to see. Well, only one will ever see it. Because it's just worth doing that really well. 
because they had, a, they had an aesthetic and a work ethic which led them to do that. And who, who is going to hand-carve stone gargoyles that never get seen in 21st century America? This is not going to happen, is it? Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yes, 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 that's right, that's right. Very wise. Um, uh, Pastor Bradley and then gentleman at the back, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've heard his name, but I've not read those, no, are they good? I know I have come. You wrote one. Why? Why? Why office work is bad and fixing things feels good or something. Right. Now I've, I've read that. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yes. No, I, th- I think that's right. And I th- it's connected with... Um, it's intriguing how we sometimes create physical pursuits um, to break out of the knowledge work thing. Um, my own experience of this is that I, I have a, a strange vocation. I spend most of my time either talking to people or reading books. I mean, that's basically what pastors do, or praying. And that's kind of like a particular kind of, emo- of intellectual demand. And so I used to get home in the evening, and I think, oh, I, should, I should read something. I'm, like, I'm, I'm brain dead. I can't read anything. Um, and I thought, what... I stumbled across bread making. And I thought, this is really nice because it, it is interesting and it's demanding, but it's not intellectually demanding in the way that reading books is. And then carpentry, I'm nothing like where your pastor is. I, I make rustic things. <laughs> I try and pretend that it's deliberate. Um, uh, but uh, Recently, I, I had to re- replace the purge valve on our Ford Fiesta. Um, and uh, the guy in the garage said he'd fit it for $120. I'm like, are you kidding me? can't be that difficult. It was quite difficult. <laughs> but it was just, I'd, I'd never been a car. I'd never, I don't know anything about cars, but I, th- I looked up a couple of YouTube videos. See, YouTube is good for something, right? I'm not all dissing YouTube. I looked at this guy and I thought, okay, 
The problem is getting a hose off that thing. So I'm underneath the car trying to leave this little rubber hose off the plastic nipple without snapping the nipple off, because that would be bad. Um, and it took about two hours. And it's, it's tremendously satisfying. And I don't think it was worth $120 for all the cuts on my fingers and grease all over my face and everything. But it was still really, it was a kind of enriching experience. And so part of the, the flip side of the, the problem of this latest set of technical, technological developments, which are basically electronic since the 50s, and IT and communications technology, the flip side of that is the embrace of the physical world. And uh, Matthew uh, Crawford is one guy who's written on that. And um, yeah, uh, I, there, there was a guy who was interviewed by Stephen Blackwood at Ralston College on the Ralston College podcast who describes himself, and I forget, he's a philosopher, professor of something, philosophy, and an almond farmer. That's how he describes himself. That's a weird description. He's got like two almond trees. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't make many almonds, but he, in his view, a significant part of what makes him as a human being is the physical stuff that he does. Um, so you have a pastor and carpenter. And maybe one of the things that we need to, which will help us positively to regain a sense of control over our lives, is to, how would you get your son to not come in from school and immediately go flicking through Facebook for two hours? Well, you give him something else to do. You know, the expulsive power, not of a new affection, but of a new activity. Something else that's exciting that he can invest in and enjoy and get excited about. And I, and I think there's, there's, there's some wisdom in that. So, you know, back, so, so back in the day when like, you had to, at least, what's, invention of cars, what's that done? Which means you can commute 20 miles to work. But previously, you had to walk five miles to work to the farm across town. So you get 10 miles a day of exercise. Well, now if you work in an office, you might be more economically productive. Great. Well, you might have to put the exercise in somewhere. So you can then creatively um, embrace get yourself a gym membership or just take up running or something. That, that would be, I think, a reasonable way of accommodating some of the downsides of a new way of life um, without completely abandoning it and becoming agrarian and subsistence farmer out in rural whatever county we're in. Um, I'm looking at the clock. It's just after 11. Do we want to finish? Yeah. I, I want to let you guys go. Um, I'm happy to stick around because um, I know one or two of you may want to talk more. I'm sorry, so we didn't get to your question. Um, but I want to honor your commitment and let you go to your other responsibilities for the day. So if you don't mind, I'll lead us in prayer, and then um, we can disperse. Merciful Father, we ask for an extra measure of your Spirit's grace as we continue to contemplate, and particularly as these men here talk about and seek to act on the things that we've been reflecting on uh, this morning and yesterday evening. And we pray that the result of that would be greater growth and maturity for these men here and their families and the church of which they're a part. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen.